a long history. Um, there have been some tragic events that have happened there in the past. And, you know, now it's one that they have really um, improved how they train recruits. And women went through, they went through a journey. So there was a time when only female drill instructors well, let me go back. There was a time when male drill instructors trained the females, and we were trained to be ladies, to be women Marines. Hmm. And so in the 70s, 78, when I went through boot camp, we even had um, courses on our makeup, what makeup we should wear in uniform. We had purses with gloves, and we were taught how to hold our arms. That's Dr. Betty Mosley-Brown, one of the first women of color to enlist in the United States Marine Corps. After an illustrious career as Marine, Dr. Mosley-Brown now serves as Division Chief of Federal Advisory Committees in the Veterans Experience Office at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Dr. Mosley Brown has recently released a book entitled Leadership Lessons, Personal Reflections from a Woman Marine, where she shares from her days growing up with a military mother, how music, travel, and her time as an active duty U.S. Marine brought her lessons to life. Because a life journey is a different type of travel experience, we wanted to share Dr. Mosley Brown's inspirational journey but not before we personally thanked her for her service. I often ask folks, you know, what service do you think I joined when I was 18? And the first one is Navy, the next one is Air Force, the next one is Army. No one ever thinks about the Marine Corps and women. So uh, I'm proud to say that I was one of those first women of color in the 70s that signed up. And what made you um, decide to join the Marines versus the other branches? Well, it was actually kind of easy. My mom was Army. So when I would hear soldier stories, I just thought everyone was a soldier. And then my dad was Air Force. Although he wasn't around as a little girl, I remember saying my daddy's in the Air Force and my mom was Army. But it never clicked that there was another service until when I was 18, I walked down to the recruiting station. The Marine Corps was right out front. They grabbed me and the rest is her story. <laughs> the U.S. Marine Corps is known as one of the most formidable military forces in the world and its reputation is well earned. General James Jones said that Marines are built through the ethos of struggle and sacrifice. So we asked Dr. Mosley Brown what attracted her to that branch of service. Well, you know, as many young people and older people, when you see the Marine Corps commercials and you see the uniform, they're very short on words because it's the proud tradition. It's the uniform. It's the we just know that they're the elite force. And so somewhere in my bias, in my unconscious bias, I walked in and that's where I went. I gravitated to the Marine Corps recruiter and he was in full dress blues that day with full um, medals on his dress blues. He must've been going to a ceremony and, and I, I got the bug, I went to Paris. Mm. 
Paris Island, South Carolina, not Paris. <laughs> Thanks for making that clear. Yeah. Yes, since this is a travel show. <laughs> As Dr. Mosley Brown tells us, Paris Island is nothing like the romantic Paris, France we all know. Paris Island has a long history of colonization. Many attempts were made at permanent settlement between 1526 and 1722. The first successful attempt was made by the French in 1562, followed by the Spanish and finally the British. After the Revolutionary War, Paris Island plantations began to grow cotton instead of indigo. During the Civil War, the island became a coaling station for the Union Navy. On June 26, 1891, to help protect the interests of the government during construction, a Marine Guard consisting of one sergeant, two corporals, and ten privates were assigned to Port Royal, thus establishing the first Marine post on the island. Paris Island has a long history. Um, there have been some tragic events that have happened there in the past. And, you know, now it's one that they have really um, improved how they train recruits. And women went through, they went through a journey. So there was a time when only female drill instructors well, let me go back. There was a time when male drill instructors trained the females, and we were trained to be ladies, to be women Marines. Hmm. And so in the 70s, 78, when I went through boot camp, we even had um, courses on our makeup, what makeup we should wear in uniform. We had purses with gloves, and we were taught how to hold our arms we wore we had a, a reception with senior officers during recruit training so we would know how to carry ourselves uh, with in a group of officers and so it was a whole different way of training females then in the 80s and 90s and and all the way to now now we are marines and so the elegance of it as being women has kind of gone to the side. And now we are trained Marines. We are the trained professionals that we should have been. Even so, now when you look at a Marine Corps commercial or you see Marines, we are actually wearing the same uniform. So it is a pseudo male uniform. It is it's it's cut to the individual, but our dress blues are the high collar, the devil dog, uh, strict collar. We wear the same cover as the males. So it's no longer the females and the males. We are Marines and we're trained as such. As one of the first black females to join the Marines back in the, in the 70s, what was boot camp like for you? I mean, what was the, the process of, you know, becoming full-fledged? I love that question because, you know, when you're 18, you know everything, right? <laughs> and so I was 18, even though my drill instructor or my um, recruiter had told me what to expect, 
And my mother had taken me to the side and, and wrapped all my underwear and my bras and my swimsuit so everything would fit in one suitcase. And they no longer do that. Now you just show up, just like the males. You don't have to bring anything. You just show up. But back then, I was very naive. I thought, I, I thought boot camp was me joining the Marines. I thought that I would be in four years of boot camp. Thank God that's not how it was. And so the training, I loved the training. I mean, I was there in a big squad bay with probably 60 plus other women. Um, we worked as a team. I mean, we got accolades when we worked, when we showed teamwork. There were many that excelled. I just wanted to keep my head down, you know, and get through. Uh, but it was wonderful. I had never been one that was on like a, uh, a physical fitness regime. So it was nice to run. It was wonderful to march because I love the cadence and our drill instructors would sing cadence. And it was almost like being in church. It was a religious experience walking to cadence. And so it really surprised me the day that we were told to get in our full dress dress uniform. It was dress greens at the time. And we marched to the auditorium. And I remember standing there in formation and hearing a lot of speeches about today was the beginning of the next part of our journey. And I'm thinking, where am I going? What's happening to the next part of my journey? And little did I know that that was the graduation from boot camp. Another thing that was really awesome about that day is because I didn't know what was happening, I was standing there and I was listening to all the sights and sounds. And there was one sound that was very familiar and it was my mom's cough. And I thought, there's no way my mother could have ventured to South Carolina. One, she doesn't drive. My mom's army, she wouldn't come on a Marine Corps base. And then how would she get on a Marine Corps base? But when I stood there after they said platoon 22A dismissed, I realized my army mom was there. Mm. And um, it forever touches my soul. I wrote about it in the book. I, our relationship as mother and daughter changed from, from then on. And uh, it was just, it was wonderful to have her there. And to this day, I don't know how she got home. I don't know how she got there and I don't know how she got home, but I know that she was there. And that event marked a change in the relationship dynamics between the military mother and daughter. As that 18 year old that knew it all, I remember getting a little spanking like the day before I went to boot camp. So I'm not going to tell you all the specifics, but I can tell you that I had a way with my mom. I would like look at her a certain way and she just felt that I was um, being rebellious. And so and she was right, but I, I learned to do it with my eyes. So even the day before I was placed in my place as a daughter. And once I graduated, there was a respect there. There was a level of, she was so proud that I ventured into the military service that I had made it through recruit training. And that was something that she had experienced. So she knew the level of discipline that I had to have achieved to earn the Eagle Globe and anchor. So, and forever she was, 
even till her last breath day, she always told me how proud she was of me. And, um, and I get it now, I get it. And just remembering that gleam in her eye makes me forever proud to be her daughter. As I listened to this beautiful story, I thought about my own relationship with my mother, and I hoped that both my mom and dad felt the same sense of pride in me. I digressed. I was still thinking about the previous questions I asked about the experience of going through Marine Corps boot camp below the Mason-Dixon line as a black woman in the 1970s. What was that like? The racial part of it, I really didn't know because the town that I grew up was very uh, mixed. So everyone of color in my high school, I was related to, or if I wasn't related to them, I called them aunt and uncle or cousin or, and that's how our town was. So it, it really didn't impact me in recruit training. Two of my drill instructors were women of color. So I felt You know, it was just like how I was growing up. I do remember, though, that was back in the day when women Marines wore the bucket cover. And are you familiar with what the bucket cover looks like? It's a cover that has literally a bucket. And it was the first cover that women from World War II um, and Korea had. So it was a design that had been around for decades. But you take the cover and you put it on your head. And in the 60s, women would wear wigs. And then it was approved for women to wear wigs in uniform. So, but I didn't want to wear a wig. I wanted my hair somehow to fit under that cover. And they just didn't have the beauticians of color there at, at Paris Island to take care of us. So one of the things I did, I remember writing to my mom and saying, mommy, I need something so that I can be uh, correct in uniform meet the hair standards. And, um, and she did, she sent me a long ponytail so that I could pull my hair back, have a beautiful bun in the back. And uh, that's, that's how I went. Oh, the same thing with makeup, you know, our uniforms were green. So you would think that our, you know, our makeup would be more complimentary of green. No, what they put on the women of color is green eyeshadow. Mm. So to to this day, I will not put on green eyeshadow. (laughs) Given that uh, your parents served the country, oftentimes when we hear of military children, they wind up traveling the country and traveling the world. Was that your experience or did you have a different experience? Uh, I think I had a different experience because by the time I was born in 1960, uh, my mom was already out of the army and she had already separated um, after she found out I was she was pregnant. Um, so she ventured to back to Pennsylvania. So I really didn't know my dad that much, um, but he did retire from the Air Force. And my mom, she she gave me those tools, those resources that she had learned from the army, but I did never knew her when she was in uniform. So uh, my journey was more just growing up, having that, that structure that most military people, you know, offer to their children in service. 
or their children in the family, just because it's a way of life. You know, we're so used to making our bed or making our rack in a certain way or having things aligned because that's the way we're taught, no matter how long you serve in the military. But she did have a goal to travel. Well, I tried. I tried. So (laughs) this is another story where the 70s were uh, a pivot place for women in the military. When I joined, I wanted to travel. But of course, I didn't know how that all would take place. But when I finished administrative school, they just happened to be at Paris Island, South Carolina. It was like I couldn't get off the island, but that's where I was. And I graduated a top of the class, the graduating class. I got to pick where I was going to be stationed. So one of the options was Saudi Arabia. And I thought, I want to go to Saudi Arabia. But think about this. Back in the 70s, women could not be infantry. They could not carry a weapon. At least the Marine females could not. We could not qualify. Thus, we were unable to serve in the embassy guard uh, military occupational specialty. So we could not be at an embassy at another country in that role. Thank goodness things have changed now and gradually women could even in the support role. But now that women can have the infantry MOS or military occupational specialty, things are very different. But back then they said I could not go to Saudi Arabia uh, because I was a female. And that's when I started to realize that there were differences. There were different rules based on gender. And I looked over some of the other places that I could go, the locations. And because I wanted to cross water, I went to the 1st Marine Brigade in Kenioi Bay, Hawaii. So as an 18-year-old, I was in Kenioi Bay, Hawaii, Oahu, for three years. Couldn't drive but I was in Hawaii. (laughs) At least you were in paradise. I was, and it was glorious. To this day, sometimes in the early mornings, I'll wake up to the sunrise, and I think about the times when I would run. I would run in the early morning just so I could see the sunrise uh, there um, in Hawaii. Absolutely gorgeous. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world through stories at worldfootprints.com and make sure to subscribe to the World Footprints newsletter for compelling and exclusive content. Eleanor Roosevelt said, The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Here's more of our conversation with Dr. Betty Mosley-Brown, one of the first African-American women to enlist as a U.S. Marine. Travel is transformative no matter how far you go, and we were intrigued to hear about Dr. Mosley-Brown's unique transformational experiences. Because I've been only stateside, I realized that I love being above the clouds. Back in the day when we would fly, uh, because of my work, because of speaking, because of 
just everywhere how active I was. I flew at least a couple times a month. And I love being above the clouds. I love taking pictures above the clouds. I love seeing their formation. I love coming, going into the clouds, coming out of the clouds. I love sunrises and sunsets above the clouds. And it gives me such a peace, such a, it's like a, a religious, re-energized spirit. Uh, I remember when I was writing my dissertation and I was flying and I actually finished my dissertation above the clouds. And so I don't know if this happens to other people. Usually when you get on a flight, you take a nap, your eyes close and that's it. And the next time you know it, you're landing. But I, uh, I enjoy, it's almost just like a vacation being above the clouds. And just like the airplanes Dr. Mosley Brown enjoyed traveling in, her career also soared and presented a wonderful journey. And what a journey it's been. I remember, see, my mom went to the federal service uh, whenever she got out of the army. And I would hear her stories of how she worked for the Department of the Army. She worked at a base at the, at the town where we lived. And and. You know, she always said, it's not good enough just to have a job. Make sure you are crafting your career. And so when I transitioned from the Marine Corps in 1992, uh, the opportunity just fell in my lap immediately. In fact, when I was checking out of the base there at San Diego to become a civilian. So there are civilian, we, they're called... Um, general service or GS workers. And I immediately, I hung up my uniform one day and put on a suit the next day to be a GS employee. So I was honored to do that. And uh, that's where I started my uh, civil service career in San Diego. Then it brought me to Washington, D.C., where um, the, the greatest honor and privilege that I've ever had has been as the Associate Director Center for Women Veterans, because I was able for over a decade really to focus just on women veterans. And even though I was and I am a woman veteran, there are so many policies and, and things that I was able to put my hand on because of so many women veterans stories and we were able to make a difference for women veterans. So um, I'm still in the federal government, still working for the Department of Veteran Affairs and doing those other things, still representing women veterans, trying to um, share leadership stories. And, and even in this world of Zoom, we are finding forums online where we can connect and share stories and experiences as women veterans. So, um, boy, that's I took a 30-plus year career and put it into a few moments. So, <laughs> but that's where it is. <laughs> but that isn't all. Her road less traveled also included an educational journey where she obtained a doctorate degree. Yes. And again, it was one of those non-traditional journeys because there are many of your listeners uh, probably are thinking to themselves, well, you know, I've already got a bachelor's and, you know, that's it. I'm going to stop there. But I can tell you that for women, it is 
fabulous if you have the energy, if you have the time to continue to get a terminal degree. There's something magical that happens when you have uh, a D at the end of your name. And it could be a Juris Doctorate, it could be MD, ED, you know, there's a whole lot of the Ds. But that's what happened to me. Uh, right as I transitioned from being in the military, uh, of course, I had the GI Bill. I had the old GI Bill. I had what actually was called VEAP back then. And because I got out in the 90s, I was able to contribute money so that I actually got the GI Bill, which allowed me to go to school longer and they paid for it. So I was, I went, my journey was bachelor's, master's, right into a doctoral program. And that's the way I encourage folks to do it because life happens. And the minute that you, you get off that, that wheel, you get into life. And then you become to uh, say all those excuses as to why you can't do it. And one of my greatest uh, words are, are books. One is from Sam Horn, and she wrote the book, Someday is Not a Day of the Week. And that really rang a bell with me. It's like, okay, someday I'll get an advanced degree. Well, someday was today. And so I found that um, that just worked for me. And I found the momentum just kept growing. Now, along those lines, um, with a doctoral degree, you do have to write a dissertation or you have to be published or, or there's something you have to do in that uh, college, in that academic environment to complete it. And so I also encourage folks to know your journey up front. When you sign up with a university, know what the finish line looks like and how to get there. Because many folks don't make it to the finish line because of the academic requirements. So I knew that what I needed to do was write a dissertation. I needed to do some survey, uh, some something in the end. And I actually, you know, it wasn't an easy journey. I mean, it was one that I had to twist. It had lots of twists and turns and, and halfway through my beloved mother passed away. And I, I didn't know how to recover from that. And I could just hear her voice saying, you've come too far to stop now. And so I was making that four hour commute a day on the train to Washington DC for my job. And I realized the only way that I could finish my dissertation was to act like I was still working, be on annual leave. And it was wonderful. My, my three-star or two-star retired general uh, boss allowed me to take leave every morning. I would come in dressed. I would work on my dissertation. And then in the afternoon, I would pick up whatever needed to be done on my job. And that is the way that I was able to finish because there just wasn't enough hours in the day for me to do it once I got home from that four hour a day commute. And I love the commute, talk about journeys. I love being on the train. I love my, my train peeps. I love being in the quiet car where no one could speak. <laughs> and that is where I would finish all the referencing that I needed to do for my dissertation. And, and everything just worked into place. Um, I was able to uh, interview some of the first female admirals and generals 
And that was a blessing and that was my dissertation. And to this day, some of those women are my closest friends. And, you know, as a staff sergeant, as an enlisted woman, to say that they are my friends, I mean, that just lets you know the, the level and the caliber of these female leaders yeah. because they they brought me in and they shared their journeys. Mm-hmm. And um, that will always stay part of my DNA just because of how they accepted me. They being some of the first female admirals and generals. In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there were limitations of women, females, and the ranks that women could attain. So there is a rank called the 06. Those of us in the military know what a 06. It's a colonel or it's a captain in the sea services in the Navy or Coast Guard. And often there could only be one female 06 out of the whole military or one colonel, female colonel in the Army or the Marine Corps. So, I mean, it was very competitive and it wasn't until 67 and then ongoing uh, legislation in the 70s that opened the ranks for females and for female officers. I mean, the ruling was that females could not lead males. And so that was the understanding early on when the policies started. But thank goodness in the 60s and early 70s, that was lifted. And um, now we have women generals and admirals. And it's not a surprise now when we see a woman or even a woman of color that has a star on her or multiple stars on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. And um, thanks to them, I mean, we stand on their shoulders because talk about some journeys that that they've had to travel. I mean, one name that I'm sure that your uh, viewers know is Admiral Michelle Howard. I mean, she has so many firsts uh, behind her name and this petite woman of stature has done so many things grander than mountains, but um, she is one that We just have to be amazed at what she was able to do. And I'm sure that she didn't let her gender, her stature, or uh, her ethnicity uh, hamper her at all. And she's been a great uh, uh, role model for all of us. Once you start writing, you can't stop. And that has continued (laughs) to this day uh, with the intentional pursuit of excellence. Subtitle to your new book, which you recently launched. Talk to us about your new book and how different that experience was from writing a dissertation, perhaps. Let me tell you. So I got lots of stories. And so, you know, I was so naive. I mean, I thought that I could write a book about my life and it would be you know, a book. And as as I got down to it, I realized I could really only cover the first 18 years of my life in this book because I, I wanted to do credit and justice to all those uh, quotes and all those lessons that I learned from my mother. And it was then in the Marine Corps, the early years, that just validated and confirmed what I had learned in those early years from my mom. So the leadership lessons, uh, personal reflections from a woman Marine are from those early years and the beginning years of 
um, with my mom. But of course, then life happened and we got into a pandemic. And I found that I sprinkled some real life COVID leadership lessons that I just couldn't ignore. And so I divided the, the book into um, different principles and then leadership reflections of the time so that it, the book is really relevant to not only military people, but anyone who either wants to be a better leader or wants to have some tools in their toolbox to really learn what it takes to, in those times, in those travel journeys, when you just don't know how you're going to get out, uh, what some other folks have done to, to make it through the storm. Just as we were preparing to return to the topic of travel, we asked about a statue she had behind her. And then that's when we learned about Dickie Chappelle. I don't know. Can you see the statue behind me um, up there? Right. Yes. Right there. That is the Dickie Chappelle Bronze Award that I was recipient of from the Marine Corps League and presented by the Marine Corps League and the Commandant of the Marine Corps. She was a war army correspondent. She was not military, but she was a war correspondent who actually served with Marine infantry units. And she died um, in the military with military units. So she was a civilian war correspondent and they held her her legacy in such high regard that every year they present uh, the Dickie Chappelle Award to a female leader who has brought to light things about women in the military service. And I'm honored to um, have received that. And at the time, I was still the president of the Women Marines Association. I served in that role uh, from 2012 to 2018. And just, it was a surprise, it was an honor, and I'm still just Mm. overcome with joy and um, thankfulness. I'm very grateful for the honor to have been one of the recipients. Now we decided that it was time to return to the topic of travel. So we first asked where she would like to travel to when we can travel the world. Well, you know, at first I would all, I would pull like the Netherlands or Sweden or Switzerland. For some reason, I've always wanted to go to that part of the world just because they've had female leaders, you know, top leaders. And I wanted to visit a country where a female had been in charge, <laughs> if not currently had been, just to see how things may be different in the, the country that she ruled. But since then, I've actually heard that in the United Kingdom there is a town called Mosley and it's spelled exactly like how I spelled my name so now that is on my bucket list I want to go there to Mosley just to see if there's if I feel any vibes maybe there's some family or something there but um, usually folks drop a E from Mosley and very rarely do you see the M-O-S-E-L-E-Y and so um, that's new on my travel list. So as soon as things get safe and I can travel, I'll, I'll get that passport and I promise I'll be above the clouds again going to Mosley. So on her long haul flight to Mosley, who would Dr. Mosley Brown want to sit next to? There's many people that I would say 
But in all honesty, I would love to have one more conversation with my mother. I would ask her if she knew the journey that I would venture on. I would just, I would be still enough to listen that as a 18 year old, I, I didn't, I wasn't equipped with that ability because I thought I knew it all to really be still and listen to her. I would sit at her feet and just listen to what those, those lessons that she would want to embark on me. So, um, I think that's what I would do. I mean, she loved to cook fried chicken and her fried chicken was known all around Pennsylvania. So I would ask her to please fry some some chicken so that I could sit there and we could have a wonderful dinner just one more time. Well, Dr. Betty Mosley Brown, it has been an honor. Semper Fi. <laughs> Thank you. It has been an honor. There's so many things I love about Dr. Mosley Brown, one of them being that she's a Delta, which is a sister sorority of my father's, my late father's uh, Omega Psi Phi fraternity. And so we felt a kinship there and I was really excited to, uh, to, to know that about her. You know, what an amazing career, dear. I mean, there's so many honors, there's so many um, accolades, just the, the, the grit and determination, just the course of her life shows us, our listeners, what is possible when you concentrate, when you focus, and when you act intentionally. Her journey as a female Marine, as an African-American in the Marines at the time when she did it is inspirational and I have a lot of respect uh, for her going into such a male-dominated uh, arena and excelling and shining and coming out on that end with powerful stories that are there for all of us to uh, be inspired from and the fact that she went on and got her uh, doctorate degree and is continuing to uh, grow and take that experience and, and share that with a much wider audience and kind of distill those experiences, I think says a lot about her character and mm -hmm. what she's about, which is really opening up possibilities for everyone who want to think differently about life. Right, right. And, you know, I was very touched uh, as we ended our interview with her when she spoke about her mother you know, just having that last chance to talk to her mother on a long haul flight to visit a city that um, is named after her family, Mosley. In closing, we'd like to leave you with a few words from our producer, Ed Cole, a Marine for life. You may have heard Tanya say Semper Fi to Dr. Mosley Brown. Semper Fi is short for Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Semper Fidelis is the motto of every Marine, an eternal and collective commitment to the success of our battles, the progress of our nation, and the steadfast loyalty to the fellow Marines we fight alongside. Established in 1883, this motto distinguishes the bond developed and shared between Marines. It goes beyond words that are spoken, as it is a warriorhood that is lived. Dr. Mosley Brown, Semper Fi, Devil Dog, Oorah! We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so honored that you spent this time with us. 
Thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.